ministers in Britain tend to read, they write down their sermons almost word for word. It has a long tradition. You can go back to Edwards. <laughs> and, um, but I also uh, will be speaking not just from my notes. The last two pieces of advice I was given was to make sure that I'm not reading to myself and that I slow down. Thankfully given to me by my wife. John Lawrence Burns was born in 1793. John was a War of 1812 veteran, known as America's Second War for Independence, or the war everybody forgot. All seemed well. John settled down in a quiet home. He lived, by all accounts, by those days' standards, a long life. He was now 69 years old. There was just one problem. It was July 1st, 1863, and John had retired to Gettysburg. To be continued, please turn to Joshua chapter 14. I'm not here to tell you good stories, but we will pick up that thread. John, uh, Joshua chapter 14 and verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. Whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest of this day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced in. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed them and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite unto this day because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. Caleb is now an old man. He is reflecting about his life, and his heart beats as passionately for God 
at age 85 as it was when he was a spy at age 40. He's seen a lot. He's endured a lot. He's been around the block for the last 45 years. And the wilderness wanderings may have seemed aimless, but Caleb purposed in his heart to make his walk with God intentional. Caleb makes a request to capture a mountain. He mentioned that he's 85 years old, and this is not as a detriment, but he sees it as a strength. Look at verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 40 and 5 years. What is Caleb saying? God has been faithful to me all these years. I had already written that when Pastor Joe preached his sermon last week. I was like, whoa, pump the brakes, Pastor Joe, pump the brakes, pump the brakes. Yeah, God's been faithful to Caleb these 45 years. But look at verse 8. He says, Nevertheless, my brothers that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. And scripture allows us to get inside Caleb's thought bubble. So we're going to get inside his thought bubble and we're going to go over to Numbers chapter 14. Or sorry, Numbers 13. So keep your, keep your hand in Joshua 14, but we're going to go over to Numbers 13. Numbers 13, verse 26. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome but the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. And all the inhabitants that we saw in it are the men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? For wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be prey? Were it not better 
for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and the children of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the Lord of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. We see that the spies gave a report of disbelief. It wasn't a, a report of unbelief, but it was a belief that trusted in something other than God. And here we see the arguments and quite easily can ask ourselves the question, what other arguments could there have been? It says they murmured against Moses there in verse 2. A Pastor Joe in Sunday school this, this morning was saying how when we read God's word, we should start asking ourselves some questions. And I did that very thing. I started to ask myself, what kind of arguments would I make? Let me put myself where they were at. And so I want to give you some of the arguments that I think could have easily have been made that day and what was in contention. First, there could have been the relativistic argument. And actually, we see that in the passage. All right? They say, you say, Caleb, they're giants. We, you say they're small. Caleb I'm, Caleb, I'm sorry, but when it's 10 to 2, it just rots to be you. Thank God for majority rule. <laughs> but honestly, Caleb, this is just a matter of perspective. You have you, your view, we have ours. And your, your, your viewpoint's in the minority. Then there could have been the fear-mongering, realistic argument. Caleb, these are the challenges. It's this, and this, and this, and we're going to need this amount of manpower, and if the supply chain breaks down at X, Y, and Z, it's not going to be as easy as A, B, C. Right? We can see that. Which could also lead us to the good old boy club argument. Hey, he's my buddy. We've gone through a lot together. I get along with him. Caleb, I don't really have a connection with you, which simply means I trust him over you. Us bros have got to stick together. And I mean, did you see my buddy back there at the Red Sea? I mean, he was scrambling over the rocks right as the Red Sea was about to just pile in over him, and he got out. Man, it was good. It was really good. Seriously, bro, that was sick. <laughs> right? We've got our buddies. We've got to stick together. And then there was the pragmatic argument. But what about the children? Argument. Look at Numbers 14.3 again. What does it say? And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be prey? Caleb, you just want to make our children shark bait. <laughs> right? 
I'm just thinking about others. Caleb, you're just thinking about yourself. You just want to be arm-wrestling Amalekites, and we don't need any wannabe Rambos. Then there was the uniformity over unity argument. We need 100% consensus here. If we can't have uniformity, then we can't have unity. Caleb, you're causing division, and that's not what we're about. We must have solidarity, and we need to explore how we can get your conscience across the line. Never mind what we're building consensus around, just as long as we have consensus. And then there could have been the moderate argument. I sympathize, I sympathize with you, brother. You want to go in there and take care of business, but reform takes time. Slow and steady wins the race. If you want to take down the idols of apathy and fear and disbelief and discontent and entitlement, then you're going to have to go about it in a constructive, tempered manner that conforms to social norms and cultural expectations. Reforms is slow, and it takes a long time, and it doesn't matter. We'll take baby steps and do whatever it takes as long as we get there in the end. I readily admit that that's probably the stumbling stone I would have fallen on. Caleb, don't be radical. Don't be reckless. This is a plan that is not sober sounding or reflective or a conventional plan. It was risky. It was radical. The children of Israel didn't even have any weapons. And they're not going to have weapons until another 500 years because we know that because Saul and Jonathan were the only ones who had swords. So they're going into the promised land and they're going to take over without any weapons? Insanity. That doesn't sound very wise. Then there could have been the ad hominem argument, the name-calling argument. It's time to torch Caleb. Let's weaponize the term fundamentalist and to mean extremist. And boy, Caleb's a flaming fundamentalist. Caleb, you do realize the difference between compromising on preference is different than compromising on principles, right? Yes, good. That'll cool you off. Then there could have been the moral equivalency argument. Well, Caleb, you're not perfect either. Who do you think you are for calling us up on not living by faith and not living up to principles? Aren't we better than the heathen? Aren't we God's people? You're no better than us. And there could have been the guilt by association argument. Ah, uh, I see what you're trying to do, Caleb. We all know Joshua's being mentored to take command, and you're good in with Joshua. He's your buddy. One more step up the ladder. And then we see in Numbers chapter 14, verse 3, the accusation of the abnegation of leadership. This accusation implicates Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb together as co-conspirators. The solution is simple in verse 5 and 10. Caleb and Joshua, you along with Moses and Aaron, have come up with this half-baked plan against our well-being. You've completely 
disregard our safety. We're going to elect a new leader, and then we're going to stone you. The only thing that, I, I got really nervous when I got down to this passage, and I was like, wow, what, what's, what's going to stop this from happening? And the only thing that stopped the stoning of these four men was God showing up in the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. Ever wish you were vindicated in such a dramatic way? I mean, God, just light me up. I just need the spotlight right here. Ah, right? Right? We don't always have God's vindication put to us like that, but sometimes you wish you could sing the Hallelujah Chorus in that moment. It practically turns you into a Pentecostal. <laughs> There's your Benny Hand moment. <laughs> so really what I want to tell you is this. This wasn't Caleb or Joshua or Moses' half-baked plan. This was God's plan. And they were standing up for what was right. And the contention here wasn't the enemies of God. The contention here was with the people of God. And so I want to ask you this question. How do I see myself? This term isn't original with me, but it's been called Disney Princess Theology. This name basically is, this idea is this, is that when we read our Bibles, we can see ourselves as the protagonist, as the goody in the story. The prince or the princess, not the villain. As the people of God, undermining God. But in Joshua 14, 8, Caleb refers to those who oppose them not as the enemies of God, but as his brothers. The giants and the opposition and the mountains Caleb faced in Joshua 14, he doesn't mention them first. He says, hey, Joshua, remember back then? Back in 45, 45 years ago. Remember what were we contending for? I want this mountain over here. It's a little hill. The mountains Caleb faced weren't outside the camp. They were inside the camp. They weren't arguments made. They were, they were arguments made by the people of God in the name of God, but it was against God. They were arguments within the camp, and I wonder if we're honest to admit it, that in our life, we may have had some of those very same arguments and made them ourselves. I know I'd, I would have. My encouragement tonight, today is to say this. Let us not assume that as the people of God that we're always doing things God's way with God's endorsement, with God's favor, that we have God on our side. It was the presumption of Job's friends. It was the presumption of the ten spies in the congregation of Israel when they said God didn't bring us out into the wilderness to become prey. It was the presumption of Korah with 250 chiefs in their attempt to discard Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16.3 when they stated, quote, they assembled themselves together against Mo Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. It was the presumption of using the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God dwelt, but was used as a talisman and maybe in today's equivalency, well, I go to church, or I've got a good relationship with my pastor, so I must be good with God. God judges unrighteousness, whether committed by the unrighteous or the people of God. This is what 
the prophet Habakkuk struggled with in Habakkuk 1.13. And you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? God responded to the prophet in Habakkuk 2.16. You will have your fill of shame for glory. Drink to yourself and show your uncircumcision. God wanted to reveal the incongruity of uncircumcised behavior with a physical symbol of being on God's side and being the people of God. God hates pride. He hates hypocrisy. He won't be mocked. It's easy to say the name of God, but do we pollute his name in what we say or how we say it? What we excuse and what we see and what we pretend not to see? Do we pollute his name in how we speak, how we treat our wife or our husband, how we discipline or disciple as a father or mother, how we interact as a brother or sister with the body of Christ? Are we living the name of God, not just citing it? Are we sanctifying the breath of God in our life? If we want to possess the blessing of God and the inheritance that he has for us, then we must see ourselves for who we are. Our good is demonic and dispossessing of our spiritual inheritance if we just see ourselves in need of a savior for our justification and not also our sanctification. Let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that every time the people of God are sinning, that they must be a false flag. No, Israel was sinning against God as the people of God while dispossessing themselves of the blessing of God under that very name. Did God bring us out of Egypt to be slaughtered? Sounds very much like another question that presumed the name of God. Hath God said? We can be well-intentioned, we can be sincere, but neither can substitute for obedience. It happened in Caleb's day Christians invoked the name of God on both sides of the American Civil War. We're not exempt from it today. It can be a problem for me when I think I'm fighting for what I think is right. But I can be short-sighted. I can still be subject to prejudice, bias, in-group, out-group prejudice. We have a constant barrage that wants to wash and inform our conscience in our world today, in the news, in the media. Is that washing our conscience more than God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit? Secondly, how do I see what is worth inheriting? Segway back to July 1st, 1863. John Lawrence Burns, when he saw the fighting about to break out, he grabbed his musket over the fire hearth and his powder horn. The Iron Brigade was taking up position outside his farm, and he asked if he could join their ranks. They said, sure. When he asked if he could get a rifle, they said they didn't have any, but if he stuck around, they'd be able to give him one. He said, sure. 
Soon John was smack in the middle of a firefight and the Union troops were slowly retreating up the hill. As a civilian, if he were caught taking up arms, he'd have been shot or executed, so they threw away his rifle. he threw away his rifle, but was soon apprehended by the Confederates. He made a convincing story that he was looking for his wife and was eventually released. John was photographed by Matthew Brady, the famous Civil War photographer, and introduced to Abraham Lincoln and became a national war hero. Pennsylvania's own uh, 20th century illustrator, N.C. Wyeth, uh, has a dramatic picture of him, painting him in a dramatic pose firing his musket. Burns could have said, I'm too old. I've done my time. I did my service, but he didn't. He still had an inheritance that was worth fighting for, a home, a family, and he saw that there was a good still worth possessing. And Caleb did too. He fought for his inheritance for 45 years. How do I see what's worth inheriting? I keep my eyes on what is of worth. C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Magician's Nephew. He said, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. I want to be a person of God that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that is spirit-empowered, that is not trying to vindicate my idea of what is right, but God's righteousness. That's more concerned with the state of the church than with the state of the economy. And if you want to know a litmus test as to which one is more concerned to you, then ask yourself this question, what do you talk more about? I'm concerned about the body of Christ. I'm concerned about the name of Christ and it being vindicated and held up as a light to this generation. Third, I really want to narrow down the passage to the truth of the passage because we've gotten some truths out of this passage, but that's not the same as the truth of the passage. How do I see Christ as my inheritance? Because you see, Caleb is a Christ type. His obedience to God gave him the blessing of his inheritance. As a picture of Christ, Caleb's obedience brought blessing. We can see Christ's obedience to the Father allowed him to procure our inheritance. In Luke 22, 42, when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Christ has secured our salvation. For Caleb, living in the blessing of the promised land took obedience. And notice, it says right there at the end of the passage in Joshua 14, it says, and the land was at rest. The land was at rest. I love that imagery. It was a reality, but it was a temporary reality. Caleb wasn't Christ. He couldn't secure that land forever, but Christ could, and he would. For Caleb, living in the blessing of the promised land, took obedience. Joshua 14, 13 is the condition of that blessing because he wholly followed the Lord. Caleb had to climb Mount Hebron to claim his inheritance, and Christ had to claim Mount Calvary. So the question is this, what's robbing you of the blessings of Christ? What's holding you back from salvation? What is depriving us of seeing our growth and sanctification? 
What is distracting us from staying focused on the, the eternal promises of God and letting us enter into the promised land? It's some sort of self. Self in a lot of different forms. Self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-worth, self-accomplishment. These all have the claims of sin, death, and self-destruction. This is not the identifier of a blood-bought, eternally atoned for heir of the King of Kings, who as a son and daughter of the King can come before God's presence and ask, knowing it will be given, because you know what to ask for, and seek, knowing you will not only find, but also find what is of worth. This is how we secure our inheritance in Christ, by saying, not my will, but thine. For our elderly congregants, I want to encourage you, please keep fighting the good fight of faith. We are your inheritance. Your faithfulness is planted and watered and discipled and continues to bear fruit. I was mentioning this past Wednesday night to one of our younger congregants, and I said, you know, you guys should reach out and talk to some of your older congregants in your church. And one of our young congregants raised their hand and said, oh, do you know who this congregant is? They had a very specific person in mind. And I got a big smile because I had the exact same person in mind. And I was like, wow. That senior saint has a huge influence. That's, that's discipleship. That's sticking around long enough to see the fruit, the inheritance, your spiritual children. Are there Caleb's in our midst today? Absolutely. Not only in this congregation, but we just met one, missionary Jack Douglas. I asked Jack two questions. I said, Jack, how old are you? He said, I'm 82. And I asked him the second question. I said, Jack, are you going back to Papua New Guinea? He said, no, but I'm going to work on revising my Bible translation. And it dawned on me in that moment. Jack is one of the few people, if not the only person, working on that translation of the Bible for that specific people group that he created a written language for. That's Jack's mountain. That's Jack's inheritance. He gets to enjoy the labor and the fruit of that inheritance because he gave his life for that mountain. He's still going after those people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. We still have Caleb's here today. And you see, that's the difference between Mount Pisgah and Mount Hebron. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Verse 49 and 52. Here's the last command that God gives to Moses. He says, get up into this mountain, Abarim, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab that is over against Jericho, and behold the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession, and die in the mount, whither thou goest up, and be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron, thy brother, died at Mount Hor, 
and was gathered unto his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the water of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet thou shalt see the land before thee, but thou shalt not go in thither until the land which I give to the children of Israel. I can imagine the mix of emotions that Moses must have felt. The frustration. Moses was shut out. He was closed off. The promises of God were still true, but Moses wasn't going to be able to enjoy them. Pisgah was the mountain where God took Moses to the top and said, Look, don't touch. I can imagine Moses weeping in disappointment and even maybe throwing down a large stone. It wouldn't have been the first time. But God wanted to take Moses up to the summit called Pisgah. It was here that God in his mercy showed Moses the future. Read with me Deuteronomy 34. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Ebo, to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land Judah unto the utmost sea, and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees unto Zor. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab, Moab 30 days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Even in our failure, God can take our stumbling stones and turn them into memorial stones for his glory. Because in Deuteronomy 32:31, Moses sings this, for their rock is not our rock. Mount Hebron, Pisgah was where a vision died and a life was lost. Mount Hebron was the mountain where the promises of God would be enjoyed and lived. It could be lived out in flesh and blood and tasted because Caleb followed wholly after God. Caleb could taste and see that the Lord was good because he was already doing it. So to recap, how do I see myself? Do I not only see myself as a sinner in need of a savior in my justification, but do I see myself in need of a savior in my sanctification? Let us not see ourselves as the people of God having God's favor simply because we call ourselves the people of God. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And we've seen a lot of sacrifice today. We've seen sacrifice of time and talent and tithe and the sacrifice of praise. But again, that is no substitute for obedience. Secondly, how do I see what is worth possessing? Do I see myself as an heir of the king? That my inheritance has a spiritual worth that no material endowment can compare, but can certainly rob? Your spiritual inheritance is possessed not only to enjoy, but to cultivate for others. What are you securing for your children, for the body of Christ? Are we striving more for materialism? or kingdom mission? 
What do you want to possess? Is it your faith or your 401k? What is your conversation more oriented around? Remember, it's not only here you stand that determines your perspective, but who you are. As a child of the king, caught, um, yeah, as a child of the king, never fully enjoying the promised land from Mount Pisgah, or a child of the king that enjoys Hebron because they know that all of God's promises are yes and amen. Joshua understood what was at stake. He said it early on, choose you this day whom you will serve. Why did Caleb want Mount Hebron? That was a question I had. Why did he want Mount Hebron? He knew the spiritual significance of Hebron. It was where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were buried. It was where they had lived their faith and struggled with it and wrestled God for it. Caleb wanted to secure that land to teach his children the hard-fought lessons of faith. And lastly, how do I see Christ as my inheritance? Every day we see God's word, a land full of promises, but they're not ours until we possess them for ourselves. The blessings of God are for those who live their faith in obedience, and only Christ can give us that step of faith. Let us dwell on the truth of Christ's incarnation. We need to put flesh on the bones of truth. What is more real about the goodness of God than Emmanuel, God with us? What is more empowering than the comforter indwelling us to fire hearts and to activate hands and feet? What can only come with an intimate relationship with God? Let us pray back the promises of God and rob the devil of fear-mongering and despair and woe. Truth doesn't always have to be playing defense. The sword of the Spirit is a weapon that can be used on the offensive. And let us take up the sword of the Spirit and rebuke the devil, and he will flee. Let's take a step of faith knowing that every step is for the kingdom. Don't let Satan rob you of your inheritance. Is Christ your all? Is he your beginning and end? Is the joy of the Lord your strength? Let us be like David in 1 Samuel 17, 45. You come to me with sword and with spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. We live where it is all too easy to give up on the body of Christ. The giants of cynicism and frustration and disillusionment and disobedience makes us jump ship all too easily. The devil is happy to see the body of Christ fighting each other, disunified and dissipated. Where is your fight to contend not against the body of Christ, but for the body of Christ? To help lift the weary, to come alongside our leaders who, like Moses, from time to time may have sagging arms, and like Moses and Aaron, are human too. We don't contend for the body long enough to see victories. Things get tough, we get huffy, and we cut out. Caleb didn't cut out when things got tough. He endured. He was long-suffering for 45 years. He could have said, see you guys, I'm done with you. Can you imagine what Sabbath worship must have been like the following? Hey, brother, how's it going? You wanted to stone me last week, but, <laughs> right? He endured. He was long-suffering, and because of that, he got to tell his kids and his grandkids. This is where Abraham and Isaac had their Mount Moriah. Here's where Jacob wrestled with God and got a new name, the one who wrestles with God, Israel. 
Here's where I took down Arba. It's no longer Arba's Kirjath, it's now Caleb's crib. Yeah. Love it. We have our own Mount Pisgah right here. It's a beautiful place. I was there yesterday morning. I wanted to see that vista, but you know what I was reminded of? You can't live out your faith just watching the view. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in the shadow of Pisgah. I want to be with my faith family, with the saints here in Mount Calvary, where faith is lived out in flesh and blood, failure and fight, blood and tears, where we struggle and contend for each other, the body of Christ, so that we can all enjoy the promises of God together. The devil wants to knock that fight out of you and say it's not worth it. Caleb reminds us otherwise. Let us be like Caleb, whether we're eight or we're in our 80s, and say, I want that mountain. Here's where your faith can be lived out. Here's where the struggles of that faith can be hard and difficult, but it's worth it because of the inheritance that you can enjoy and possess for yourself and for your faith family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Caleb, a man who was willing to go the distance for the body of the Lord Most High. Thank you for giving him as a picture to us of Christ. We pray that we'd see ourselves as sinners in need of, us, of your salvation and as saints who struggle with sin that still need to be saved from ourselves each day. May we find the richness of your salvation in the blessing of obedience. May we fear you more than man. May we be willing offerings of obedience on the hills you've given us to sacrifice on. May we find Christ our solid rock on which to stand as an inheritance to plant our feet as a firm foundation for your body and for your bride's sake. We thank you that you have given us a better inheritance than anything that Caleb could, could possess. But we thank you for the picture that he gives us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for um, you working these things out for our good, even when we can't necessarily see the good. Help us to trust you in it. Help us to contend for the body, to lift up arms that are tired, to encourage our faith family, to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ that may be dragging a little, that may be concerned, that may have real doubts. Thank you for Caleb who was patient. Thank you for his willingness to make sure that he could get the congregation across the Jordan and into the promises of your goodness and your faithfulness for himself and for future generations. May we do the same. Amen.